The following program is paid programming. The views expressed on the following program are those of its hosts and participants, and nowhere reflect those of the ownership, staff, or advertisers of WNRI. Good afternoon. Right now on this, my goodness, sunny Wednesday, it's John DePietro on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at the website, DePietro.com. This portion of the program, a lot of accidents out there. If you find yourself in an accident, pick up the phone and call West Fountain Auto Body, 401-272-3340, 401-272-3340. Were you in an accident or someone you know? Call West Fountain Auto Body today, 401 401- 272-3340. Well, folks, we want to dip in and out. Today is day two of the uh, President Trump impeachment trial. Let's uh, pick it up a little bit. They have just started now. President Trump was no innocent bystander. And we're going to dip in and out. The evidence will show that he clearly incited the January 6th insurrection. Good afternoon to everybody on Facebook Live. It will show that Donald Trump surrendered his role as commander-in-chief Not true. and became the inciter in chief Not true. of a dangerous insurrection. And this was, as one of our colleagues put it so cogently on January 6th itself, the greatest betrayal of the presidential oath this is in Congressman the history of the United States. The evidence will show you that he saw it coming and was not remotely surprised by the violence. Not true. And when the violence inexorably and inevitably came as predicted and overran this body in the house of representatives with chaos we will show you that he completely abdicated his duty as commander-in-chief to stop the violence and protect the government and protect our officers and protect our people he violated his oath of office to preserve protect and defend the constitution the government and the people of the united states Evidence will show you that he assembled, inflamed, and incited his followers to descend upon the Capitol to stop the steal, to block Vice President Pence and Congress from finalizing his opponent's election victory over him. It will show that he had been warned that these followers were prepared for a violent attack, targeting us at the Capitol through media reports law enforcement reports, and even arrests. In short, we will prove that the impeached president was no innocent bystander whose conduct was totally appropriate and should be a standard for future presidents, but that he incited this attack and he saw it coming. To us, it may have felt like chaos and madness, but there was method in the madness that day. This was an organized attack on the counting of the electoral college votes in joint session of the United States Congress under the 12th Amendment and under the Electoral Count Act to prevent Vice President Mike Pence and to prevent us from from counting sufficient electoral college votes to certify Joe Biden's victory of 306 to 232 in the Electoral College, a margin that President Trump had declared a landslide uh, in 2016. When my colleague Mr. Nagus speaks after me, he will set forth in detail the exact roadmap of all the evidence in the case. My fellow House managers and I will then take you through that evidence step by step so everyone can see 
exactly how these events unfolded. But I want to tell you a few key reasons right now that we know this case is not about blaming an innocent bystander for the horrific violence and harm that took place on January 6th. This is about holding accountable the person singularly responsible for inciting the attack. Let's start with December 12th. You will see during this trial a man who praised and encouraged and cultivated violence. We have just begun to fight, he says, more than a month after the election has taken place. And that's before the second million mega march, a rally that ended in serious violence and even the burning of a church. And as the president forecast, it was only the beginning. None of it true. On December 19th, 18 days before January 6th, he told his base about where the battle would be, that they would fight next. January 6th would be wild, he promised. Be there, will be wild, said the president of the United States of America. He gave a speech. And that too turned out to be true. You'll see in the days that followed, Donald Trump continued to aggressively promote January 6th to his followers. The event was scheduled at the, pre- at the precise time that Congress would be meeting in joint session to count the Electoral College votes. It's not against the law to finalize the 2020 presidential election. In fact, in the days leading up to the attack, you'll learn that there were countless social media posts, news stories, and most importantly, credible reports from the FBI and Capitol Police that the thousands gathering for the president's Save America march were violent, organized with weapons, and were targeting the Capitol. This mob got organized so openly because, as they would later scream in these halls, and as they posted on forums before the attack, they were sent here by the president. They were invited here by the president of the United States of America. And when they showed up, knowing of these reports that the crowd was angry and it was armed, Here's what Donald Trump told them. President Trump whipped the crowd into a frenzy, exhorting followers, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And then he aimed straight at the Capitol, declaring, you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. He told them, to fight like hell, and they brought us hell on that day. Incited by President Trump, his mob attacked the Capitol. This assault unfolded live on television before a horrified nation. According to those around him at the time, this is how President Trump reportedly responded to the attack that we saw him incite in public. Delight enthusiasm, confusion as to why others around him weren't as happy as he was. To protest. Trump incited the January 6th attack and when his mob overran and occupied the Senate and attacked the House and assaulted law enforcement, he watched it on TV like a reality show. Uh. He reveled in it. And he did nothing to help us as commander-in-chief. Instead, he served as the inciter in chief, sending tweets that only further incited the rampaging mob. He made statements lauding and sympathizing with the insurrectionists. 
over at 4.17 p.m., over three hours after the beginning of the siege, for the very first time he spoke out loud, not on Twitter, spoke out loud to the American people. Here's what he said. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. So you might be saying, all right, the president is going to console us now. He's going yeah. to reassure America. Right. He knows our pain. Yes. He knows we're hurt. We've just seen these horrific images of officers being impaled and smashed over the head. Um, we've just been under attack for three hours. No one has but here's seen what that he actually video goes on yet. To say. Not true. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. So you think he's about to decry the mayhem and violence, the unprecedented spectacle of this mob attack on the U.S. Capitol, but he's still promoting the big lie that was responsible for inflaming and inciting the mob in the first place. No one had seen the uh, video of what was going on. If anyone ever had a doubt as to his focus that day, it was not to defend us. It was not to console us. It was to praise and sympathize and commiserate with the rampaging mob. It was to continue to act as inciter-in-chief, not commander-in-chief, by telling the mob that their election had been stolen from them. Even then, after that vicious attack, he continued to spread the big lie. And as everyone here knows, Joe Biden won by more than 7 million votes and 306 to 232 in the Electoral College. But Donald Trump refused to accept his loss even after this attack. And he celebrated the people who violently interfered with the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in American history and did that at his urging. And when he did, in this video, finally tell them to go home in peace, he added this message. We love you. You're very special. Distinguished members of the Senate, this is a day that will live in disgrace in American history. That is, unless you ask Donald Trump. Because this is what he tweeted before he went to bed that night at 6.01 p.m. Not consoling the nation, not reassuring, every, reassuring everyone that the government was secure, not a single word that entire day condemning the violent insurrection. That's what he says. These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots. In other words, this was all perfectly natural and foreseeable to Donald Trump. At the beginning of the day, he told you it was coming. At the end of the day, he basically says, I told you this would happen. And then he adds, remember this day forever, but not as a day of disgrace, a day of horror and trauma as the rest of us remember it, but as a day of celebration, a day of commemoration. And if we let it be, it will be a day of continuation a call to action, and a rallying cry for the next rounds of insurrectionary justice.
because all of this was totally appropriate. Senators, the stakes of this trial could not be more serious. Every American, young and old and in between, is invited to participate with us in this essential journey to find the facts and share the truth. Trials are public events in a democracy, and no trial is more public or significant than an impeachment trial. Because the insurrection brought shocking violence, bloodshed, and pain in the nation's capital, and we will be showing relevant clips of the mob's attack on police officers and other innocent people, we do urge parents and teachers to exercise close review of what young people are watching here. And please watch along with them if you're allowing them to watch. The impeachment managers will try to give warnings before the most graphic and disturbing violence that took place is shown. We believe that the manager's comprehensive and meticulous presentation will lead to one powerful and irresistible conclusion. Donald Trump committed a massive crime against our Constitution and our people and the worst violation of the presidential oath of office in the history of the United States of America. For this, he was impeached by the House of Representatives and he must be convicted by the United States Senate. Before I close, I want to address a constitutional issue still lingering from yesterday's argument. The president obviously is still exploring ways to change the subject and talk about anything other than his responsibility for inciting the attack. We heard a lot yesterday about his claim that this incitement of the insurrection was perfectly appropriate because it's somehow protected by the First Amendment. And this little diversion caught my eye because I've been a professor of constitutional law and the First Amendment for decades. And as we'll demonstrate over the course of the trial, the factual premise and the legal underpinnings of that claim are all wrong. They present President Trump as merely like a guy at a rally expressing a political opinion that we disagree with, and now we're trying to put him in jail for it. That has nothing to do with the reality of these charges or his constitutional offense. The particular political opinions being expressed are not why we impeached the president and have nothing to do with it. It makes no difference what the ideological content of the mob was. And if we license and forgive incitement to violent insurrection by militant Trump followers this week, you can be sure there will be a whole bunch of new ideological flavors coming soon. As we'll demonstrate with overwhelming evidence, portraying Trump as a guy on the street being punished for his ideas is a false description of his actions, his intent, and the role that he played on January 6th when he willfully incited an, insurrection, an insurrectionary mob to riot at the Capitol. Last week, 144 constitutional scholars, including Floyd Abrams, a ferocious defender of free speech, Charles Freed, President Reagan's Solicitor General, Stephen Calabresi, the co-founder of the Federalist Society, released a statement calling the President's First Amendment arguments legally frivolous. Legally frivolous, adding, we all agree that the First Amendment does not prevent the Senate from convicting President Trump and disqualifying him from holding future office. They went on to say, no reasonable scholar or jurist could conclude that President Trump had a First Amendment right to incite a violent attack on the seat of the legislative branch or then to sit back and watch on television as Congress was terrorized and the Capitol sacked. Incitement to violence is, of course, not protected 
by the First Amendment. That's why most Americans have dismissed Donald Trump's First Amendment uh, rhetoric uh, simply by referring to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes's handy phrase, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. But even that time-honored principle doesn't begin to capture how off-base the argument is. This case is much worse than someone who falsely shouts fire in a crowded theater. It's more like a case where the town fire chief, who's paid to put out fires, sends a mob not to yell fire in a crowded theater, but to actually set the theater on fire. And who then, when the fire alarms go off and the calls start flooding into the fire department, asking for help, does nothing but sit back, encourage the mob to continue its rampage, and watch the fire spread on TV with glee and delight. So then we say this fire chief should never be allowed to hold this public job again, and you're fired and you're permanently disqualified, and he objects. And he says, we're violating his free speech rights just because he's pro-mob or pro-fire or whatever it might be. Come on. I mean, you, you really don't need to go to law school to figure out what's wrong with that argument. Here's the key. Undoubtedly, a private person can run around on the street, on the street expressing his or her support for the enemies of the United States and advocating the overthrow of the United States government. You've got a right to do that under the First Amendment. But if the president spent all of his days doing that, uttering the exact same words, expressing support for the enemies of the United States and for overthrowing the government, is there anyone here who doubts that this would be a violation of his oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, and that he or she could be impeached for doing that? Look, if you're president of the United States, you've chosen a side with your oath of office. And if you break it, we can impeach, convict, remove, and disqualify you permanently from holding any office Folks, of so honor, John trust, DiPietro or profit this under is the United States. Senate impeachment As trial of President Trump. Said, memorably, you can't Representative ride Jamie with the and root for the robbers. And if you become insider-in-chief to the insurrection, you can't expect to be on the payroll as commander-in-chief for the union. Trump was the president of the United States, and he had sworn to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. He had an affirmative, binding duty, one that set him apart from everyone else in the country, to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, including all the laws against assaulting federal officers, destroying federal property, violently threatening members of Congress and the vice president, interfering with federal elections, and dozens of other federal laws that are well known to all of you. When he incited insurrection on January 6th, he broke that oath. He violated that duty. And that's why we're here today. And that's why he has no credible constitutional defense. I'll tell you a final sad story in this kaleidoscope of sadness and terror and violence. One of our Capitol officers who defended us that day was a longtime veteran of our force, a brave and honorable public servant who spent several hours battling the mob as part of one of those blue lines defending the Capitol in our democracy. For several hours straight, as the marauders punched and kicked and mauled and spit upon and 
hit officers with baseball bats and fire extinguishers, cursed the cops, and stormed our Capitol. He defended us, and he lived every minute of his oath of office. And afterwards, overwhelmed by emotion, he broke down in the rotunda. And he cried for 15 minutes. And he shouted out, I got called an N-word 15 times today. And then he recorded, I sat down with one of my buddies, another black guy in tears, just started streaming down my face. And I said, what the F, man? Is this America? That's the question before all of you in this trial. Is this America? Can our country and our democracy ever be the same if we don't hold accountable the person responsible for inciting the violent attack against our country, our capital, and our democracy, and all of those who serve us so faithfully and honorably? Is this America? Mr. Nugus will now provide a roadmap, a roadmap of our evidentiary case. Folks, good afternoon at 1227. It's John DiPietro on AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You're listening to, this is coverage of the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump. Now, these are the Democrat impeachment managers that are making their case against the president. Again, right now it's 1227 on this uh, Wednesday, sunny Wednesday, on the John DePietro show, and we're going to hear the next uh, impeachment manager, Mr. President, to make his case. Distinguished senators, counsel, like several of you, I am a child of immigrants, and as a son of immigrants, I believe firmly in my heart that the United States is the greatest republic that this world has ever known. A hallmark of our republic since the days of George Washington has been the peaceful transfer of power. For centuries, we've accepted it as fact. Unfortunately, sadly, we know now that we can no longer take that for granted. Because as lead manager Raskin explained on January 6th, the peaceful transition of power was violently interrupted when a mob stormed this capital and desecrated this chamber. As you'll see during the course of this trial, that mob was summoned, assembled, and incited by the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. And he did that because he wanted to stop the transfer of power so that he could retain power, even though he had lost the election. And when the violence erupted, when they were here in our building with weapons, he did nothing to stop it. If we are to protect our republic, and prevent something like this from ever happening again. He must be convicted. Now, I want to be very clear about what we will show you during the course of this trial. 
as my fellow managers present our case to you today, tonight, tomorrow, it'll be helpful to think about President Trump's incitement of insurrection in three distinct parts. The attack, the provocation, the attack, and the harm. Let's start with the provocation. We will show during the course of this trial that this attack was provoked by the president, incited by the president. And as a result, it was predictable and it was foreseeable. And of course, that makes sense. And this mob was well orchestrated. Their conduct was intentional. They did it all in plain sight, proudly, openly, and loudly. Because they believed, they truly believed that they were doing this for him. That this was their patriotic duty. They even predicted that he would protect them. And for the most part, they were right. In his unique role as commander-in-chief of our country, and as the one person that the mob was listening to and following orders from, he had the power to stop it. And he didn't. Now some have said that President Trump's remarks, his speech on January 6th was just a speech. Well, let me ask you this. When in our history has a speech led thousands of people to storm our nation's capital with weapons, to scale the walls, break windows, kill a Capitol police officer? This was not just a speech. It didn't just happen. And as you evaluate the facts that we present to you, it will become clear exactly where that mob came from. Because here's the thing, President Trump's words, as you'll see on January 6th, in that speech, just like the mob's actions were carefully chosen. Those words had a very specific meaning to that crowd. And how do we know this? Because in the weeks prior to, during, and after the election, he used the same words over and over and over again. You will hear over and over three things. You can see them on the screens. First, what lead manager Raskin referred to as the big lie that the election was stolen, full of fraud, rigged. You will hear over and over him using that lie to urge his supporters to never concede and stop the steal. And finally, you will hear the call to arms, that it was his supporters' patriotic duty to fight like hell. To do what? To stop the steal, to stop the election from being stolen by showing up in this very chamber, to stop you, to stop us. 
I'd respectfully ask that you remember those three phrases as you consider the evidence today. Election was stolen, stop the steal, and fight like hell because they did not just appear on January 6th. Let me show you what I mean. Let's start with the big lie. You will see during this trial that the president realized really by last spring that he could lose, he might lose the election. So what did he do? He started planting the seeds to get some of his supporters ready by saying that he could only lose the election if it was stolen. I mean, in other words, really what he did is create a no-lose scenario. Either he won the election or he would have some angry supporters, not all, but some, who believed that if he lost, the election had to be rigged. And they would be angry because he was telling Americans that their vote had been stolen. And in America, our vote is our voice. So his false claims about election fraud, that was the drumbeat being used to inspire, instigate, and ignite them, to anger them. Watch this clip. Because we're not going to let this election be taken away from us. That's the only way they're going to win it. We're not going to let it happen. It's the only way we can be, it's the only way we can lose, in my opinion, is massive fraud. We all know what happened after that. He lost. He lost the election. But remember, he had that no-lose scenario that I referenced earlier. He told his base that the election was stolen, as he had forecasted. And then he told them, your election has been stolen, but you cannot concede. You must stop the steal. You can't let another person steal that election from you. All over the country, people are together in holding up signs. Stop the steal. The Democrats are trying to steal the White House. You cannot let them. You just can't let them. Now, while he's inciting his supporters, he's also simultaneously doing everything he possibly can to overturn the election. First, he begins with the courts, a legitimate avenue, legitimate avenue to challenge the election. But he ignores all of their adverse rulings when all of his claims are thrown out. Then he moves on to trying to pressure state election officials to block the election results for his opponent, even though he'd lost in their states. You'll hear my fellow managers discuss that in detail. Then he tries to threaten state election officials to actually change the votes, to make him the winner, even threatening criminal penalties if they refused. He had the Justice Department investigate his claims. And even they found no support for those claims. So he tried to persuade some 
members of his party in Congress to block the certification of his vote with attacks in public forums. When that failed, he tried to intimidate the Vice President of the United States of America to refuse to certify the vote and send it back to the states. None of it worked. So, what does he do? With his back against the wall, when all else has failed, he turns back to his supporters who he'd already spent months telling them that the election was stolen, and he amplified it further. He turned it up a notch. He told them that they had to be ready not just to stop the steal, but to fight like hell. We're going to fight for the survival of our nation, and we are going to keep on fighting. We will never surrender. We will only win. Now is not the time to retreat. Now is the time to fight harder than ever before. We have to go all the way. We're going to fight like hell, I'll tell you right now. We will not bend. We will not break. We will not yield. We will never give in. We will never give up. We will never back down. We will never, ever. You will see that in the months the president made these statements, people listened. Armed supporters surrounded election officials' homes. The Secretary of State for Georgia got death threats. Officials warned the president that his rhetoric was dangerous and it was going to result in deadly violence. And that's what makes this so different because when he saw firsthand the violence that his conduct was creating, he didn't stop it. He didn't condemn the violence. He incited it further and he got more specific. He didn't just tell them to fight like hell. He told them how where and when. He made sure they had advance notice, 18 days advance notice. He sent his save the date for January 6th. He told them to march to the Capitol and fight like hell. On January 6th, as lead manager Raskin said, the exact same day that we were certifying the election results. What time was that rally scheduled for? The exact same time that this chamber was certifying the election results in joint session. When did he conclude his speech? Literally moments before Speaker Pelosi had gaveled us into session. Many of us were in the House during that joint session of Congress. I was sitting two rows behind Leader Schumer and Leader McConnell. I remember it vividly. And as we were standing there, fulfilling our solemn oath to the Constitution. The president was finishing his speech just a couple of miles away. How did he conclude that infamous speech? With a final call to action. He told them to march down Pennsylvania Avenue, to come here, that it was their patriotic duty because the election had been stolen. And when they heard his speech, 
They understood his words and what they meant because they had heard it before. Let's take just a minute and really look at his words on January 6th as he spoke at the Save America rally. Now, remember, I told you, you'd hear three phrases. The election was stolen, stop the steal, and fight like hell. Let's start with that first phrase. today do not want to see our election victory stolen. There's never been anything like this. It's a pure theft in American history. Everybody knows it. Make no mistake, this election was stolen from you, from me, and from the country. Now, of course, each of you heard those words before. So had the crowd. The president had spent months telling his supporters that the election had been stolen and stolen, and he used this speech to incite them further, to inflame them, to stop the steal, to stop the certification of the election results. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. We must stop the steal. Finally, the president used this speech as a call to arms. It was not rhetorical. Some of his supporters had been primed for this over many months. As you'll learn, days before this speech, as lead manager Raskin noted, there were vast reports across all major media outlets that thousands of people would be armed, that they'd be violent. You'll learn that Capitol Police and the FBI reported in the days leading up to the attack that thousands in the crowd would be targeting the Capitol specifically, that they had arrested people with guns the night before the attack on weapons charges. And this is what our commander-in-chief said to the crowd in the face of those warnings right before they came here. We will not let them silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen. Not going to let it happen. your people to fight because you'll never take back our country with weakness you have to show strength and you have to be strong and we fight we fight like hell and if you don't fight like hell you're not going to have a country anymore you have to get your people to fight he told them Senators, this clearly was not just one speech. It didn't just happen. It was part of a carefully planned months-long effort with a very specific instruction. Show up on January 6th and get your people to fight the certification. He incited it. It was foreseeable. 
And again, you don't have to take my word for it. The president's former chief of staff, a retired Marine, four-star general, was confirmed by this body to be the Secretary of Homeland Security. Overwhelmingly, overwhelming vote. That man was John Kelly. And on the day after the insurrection, he said this. You know, the president knows who he's talking to when he tweets or when he makes statements. He knows who he's talking to. He knows, he knows what uh, he wants them to do. And uh, the fact that... Folks, good uh, afternoon. It's John DePietro. This is live coverage. Um, Senate trial impeachment of President Trump no on 1380 and 99.9 uh, no surprise. Think about that. No surprise. The president had every reason to know that this would happen because he assembled the mob, he summoned the mob, and he incited the mob. He knew when he took that podium on that fateful morning that those in attendance had heeded his words and they were waiting for his orders to begin fighting. And that, of course, brings me, my fellow managers, to what happened here in this building. As lead manager Raskin stated, uh, my colleagues are going to walk through the ev events of January 6th and the evidence in very great detail. Uh, they are painful to watch and to recount, and I'm not going to repeat the evidence now. But I do want to be clear about what also happened during that terrible attack, and that is this, that President Trump once again failed us. Because when the violence erupted, when we and the law enforcement officials protecting us, protecting you, were under attack, as each of you were being evacuated from this chamber, from a violent mob, as we were being evacuated from the House, he could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. It was his duty as commander-in-chief to stop the violence, and he alone had that power. Not just because of his unique role as commander-in-chief, but because they believed that they were following his orders. They said so. following my president. I thought I was following what we were called to do. President Trump requested that we be in D.C. on the 6th. You heard it from them. They were doing what he wanted them to do. They wouldn't have listened to you, to me, to the Vice President of the United States, who they were attacking. They didn't stop in the face of law enforcement, police officers fighting for their lives to stop them. They were following the President. He alone, our Commander-in-Chief, had the power to stop it. And he didn't. You will hear evidence tonight, tomorrow, throughout the trial, about his refusal as commander-in-chief to respond to numerous desperate pleas on the phone, 
across social media, begging him to stop the attack. And you will see his relentless attack on Vice President Pence, who was at that very moment hiding with his family as armed extremists were chanting, hang Mike Pence, calling him a traitor. You will see that even when he did finally, three and a half hours into the attack, tell these people to go home in peace. He added, as lead manager Raskin said, I'll quote, you're very special. We love you. Think for a moment, just a moment, of the lives lost that day, of the more than 140 wounded police officers, and ask yourself if as soon as this had started, President Trump had simply gone onto TV, just logged onto Twitter and said, stop the attack. If he had done so with even half as much force as he said, stop the steal. How many lives would we have saved? Sadly, he didn't do that. At the end of the day, the president was not successful in stopping the certification. That we know, thanks to the bravery of our law enforcement and to the bravery of the senators in this room. Folks, it's John DePietro on this Wednesday. You're listening to live coverage on AM 1380, 99.9 FM. This is the Senate impeachment trial, House managers. Right now, this is Representative Joe Nuggets making his case against President Trump. To our elected leaders, to us, our families, to all who work in the Capitol, our staff, your staff, to our brave Capitol Police who defend us tirelessly with little thanks, who believed that they had a commander in chief who would defend and protect them and instead put them in harm's way, to those killed for heeding his command, to our democracy and the system which ensures that we have a president elected by the people, to our national security and our standing in the world. The harm was real. The damage was real. Five people lost their lives on that terrible, tragic day. A woman was shot dead 50 feet from where we later certified the election results. And for those who question just how bad it was, criminal complaints recently unsealed by the Department of Justice are more than revealing. You'll see one of these documents on the screen. In the charging affidavit of one of the leaders of the Proud Boys, we learned that members of this group said, I'm going to quote, they would have killed Mike Pence if given the chance. In another, we learned of a tweet in real time while they were in the building stating, we broke into the Capitol. We got inside. We did our part. We were looking for Nancy Pelosi to shoot her in the frickin' brain, but we didn't find her.
and for anyone who suggests otherwise. These defendants themselves have told you exactly why they were here. You'll see this in the trial. That in the halls of the Capitol, on social media, in news interviews, and in charging documents, they confirm they were following the president's orders. You can see some of the statements on that screen. One who said, Trump wants all able-bodied patriots. Another, that President Trump is calling us to fight. This isn't a joke. Another one, I thought I was following my president. I thought I was following what we were called to do. Our president wants us here. We wait and take orders from the president. He made them believe over many weeks that the election was stolen and they were following his command to take back their country. As I prepared for today, yesterday's trial, there's one memory that I couldn't shake, which was on the night of January 6th, and the feeling of walking back onto the House floor and seeing many of you there. I remember us finishing our task at four in the morning. And as, off, as I walked off the floor, I was so grateful, so grateful for the opportunity to thank the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, for his actions, for standing before us and asking us to follow our oath and our faith and our duty. We only got a couple of hours of sleep that morning. Early the next day, I called my dad, who came to this country, as I mentioned, as an immigrant 40 years ago. And I told him that the proudest moment by far of serving in Congress for me was going back onto the floor with each of you to finish the work that we had started. I'm humbled to be back with you today. And just as on January 6th, when we overcame that attack on our capital, on our country, I'm hopeful that at this trial, we can use our resolve and our resilience to again uphold our democracy by faithfully applying the law, vindicating the Constitution, and holding President Trump accountable for his actions. Folks, again, good afternoon. It's John DePietro on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. This is the uh, the impeachment managers are making their case to try to convict President Trump. Now, coming up at 1 o'clock, we are going to break for the 1 o'clock news uh, right here on AM 1380, 99.9 FM. Let's hear this is the lead impeachment manager again, this Representative uh, Jamie Raskin. So we're going to go at this point step by step and explain the progression all the way up. We are going to break for the one o'clock news, though. Folks, it uh, continues on AM 1380, 99.9 FM. I want to um, just take this moment to remind you that, again, on this Wednesday, folks, it's history. It's important to cover. Like many of you, um, I obviously support the president. 
I don't agree with everything they're putting forward, but I think it is important to hear it. Uh, I want to remind you about our friends at RE Coogan and Heating. Call Coogie today if you're having a problem with your heating system, 401-732-6562. RE Coogan and Heating. Look for them on Facebook. Are you listing uh, maybe right now on this Wednesday you're having a heating problem? Call RE Coogan and Heating today. Helpful, trustworthy, reliable. Explore their services. Let us into your home. Don't fix it alone. Call Coogie today at 732-6562. This is right now Representative Castro. He briefly ran for president. He is next up now. And again, I do want to, we are going to be breaking for the one o'clock news, but let's hear his uh, intro here. Of the United States. This attack did not come from one speech and it didn't happen by accident. The evidence shows clearly that this mob was provoked over many months by Donald J. Trump. And if you look at the evidence, his purposeful conduct, you'll see that the attack was foreseeable and preventable. I'll start by discussing President Trump's actions leading up to the election when he set up his big lie. Beginning in the spring of 2020, President Trump began to fall behind in the polls. And by July, President Trump had reached a new low. He was running 15 points behind his opponent. And he was scared. He began to believe that he could legitimately lose the election. And so he did something entirely unprecedented in the history of our nation. He refused to commit to a peaceful transition of power. Here's what he said. Can you give a direct answer? You will accept the election? I have to see. Look, you, I have to see. No, I'm not going to just say yes. I'm not going to say no. You commit to making sure that there's a peaceful transfer. We want to have, get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very trans, we'll have a very peaceful, there won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Senators. All right, folks, President coming up again, we're going to uh, continue on the other side. It's John DePietro. Stay tuned. A lot more ahead right now. Let's break for the one o'clock news.